Good morning. My name is Mr. Thomas, and I'm here with Riley and Hector once again talking about C.S. Lewis. And in this particular time, we're talking about the weight of glory, the weight of glory being a sermon that uh, C.S. Lewis gave. And I want to say this is probably my favorite thing that I've ever read ever outside of the Bible. Um, some of that, guys, just so you guys know, is that uh, it's the context of which I read it. So I read it when I was on a train. It's called the Max up in Portland. It's their public transit. And you get on this like train, and you start writing it. And it probably takes 45 minutes to an hour to read this sermon, especially it's something C.S. Lewis probably at his densest at a certain level. Like he's he's going with a lot of thought and a lot of ideas and a lot of considerations uh, for there. Um, but I would go through one, uh, you know, one fact or, you know, I'd read the, the um, let's say at the beginning, it has the, um, you're a kid, children playing with mud pies while there's a vacation at the beach. And that's our comparison of enjoyment now or fun now um, versus what it'll be like in heaven all the way to the end. And I also remember just being there with people and I'll talk about this at the end, but the idea that like, like the people that we engage with are going to be humans that exist forever is something that we need to think through. And um, I don't know that I thought through that in that way until I'd read this, that one day on the max, I can kind of picture where I was and looking across at the random strangers that I was riding with going like, wow, where's this train taking us? Like sort of, I sort of feel like, is it taking us to a place where some of these people are going to hell and some of these people are going to heaven? Uh, what might that look like? Sounds and that's like the degree. picture where we're doing that. And then the weight of glory, the whole picture there, just the title of it, the weight of glory is this sense that like, we're all going to be there at some point, either in heaven or hell, right? And that brings this responsibility to do that. And also the idea that like entering to heaven, we think of it as like a vacation, even use the analogy, except that it's going to be heavy. It's going to be powerful. You're going to see God as he really is. Do you actually want to see God as he really is? It's right, like one of the questions I want to engage. Scary, right. And so um, I'm going to hand it over to Riley at this point because we got uh, to describe that idea of glory. Um, I'm going to let him do that. Okay, so C.S. Lewis, when he first talks about glory, he talks about two, I guess, kind of earthly things in a way. He says that when he thinks about glory, he thinks of two things. He thinks about fame, so obviously having popularity amongst other other beings, and then uh, light, as in having this projection about you, this illumination of your character that's beyond what other people might be. And he takes this into a biblical sense, and he says that the main idea of glory when we're talking about fame is that there is actually a fame aspect to it but it's not a earthly fame you're not going to be famous with people the real definition of glory is being famous with god it's not just being known by god or having god see you as one of his creatures it's him being genuinely delighted in you and de delighted that you are in his presence and that you have followed him for your whole life. You've dedicated yourself to him. And I think that's pretty powerful to think about just how um, there's there's this sense of emotion kind of, right? Like we we have preferences for what we like and dislike. And so, and those are genuine and those are things that will be expressed in heaven as well. God will, when God judges everybody at the great white throne, like it talks about in Revelation, He's going to say he's going to say one of two things. He's going to say either you can, like you're going to be with me 
I'm delighted in you, or I never knew you depart from me. And then those people are going to be sent to the place of eternal suffering. And he also says that we face that we face that decision every day. We have the choice of either knowing God and pleasing him and satisfying that desire or turning away from him, trying to follow what we think are our actual desires, but in reality they aren't. And then he talks a little bit about in that same section, the inconsolable secret in every one of us. And it has many different aspects to it, but the main, the one that encompasses everything that he talks about with this secret is the, the need to please their creator. He says there's no more innocent of a feeling. There's no more genuine, genuine of an emotion than a creature pleasing its creator, a son pleasing its father, just something along those lines of how you're pleasing the person that you look up to the most. And he says that's very similar to what glory is when we think about it in terms of God, is that we have this desire to please, we should have this desire to please God, and we all have it in us some way, it's a, but it's about unleashing it in the sense. It's about actually putting it into action. And he says, when you do that, when you put that desire that all of us have, a secret that we all have deep down that we need to express, he says that it gets rid of any sort of inferiority complex that you may have. That this ability to be able to please your creator and it actually having a result and it's and you seeing a result in your life and then when you get to heaven is it's something that's really powerful because I think it's really, really true. I think there that there really is there's always a desire to please no matter no matter what it is. And there's obviously a point where it, where it comes to the point where like it gets annoying. You know, there's there's people that are that are like, they everything they do is to try to suck up to someone, and that's when it becomes too far. But he says that there is a point when you're pleasing your creator, and it becomes glory, and it and it becomes sort of a weight on you. It's titled the weight of glory, and it is a substantial feeling that's always that's always on you, and. I think with that with that definition of glory, I think it's really good because not only does it encapsulate all of the power that glory represents, not just in our world, but in heaven, but it's also a simple enough definition to where everyone can understand it and relate to it in some way, I think. And so that's what I thought about the glory section. And so I'll pass it over to Hector and he's going to talk about something else. I'm not sure. What are you talking about? Uh, the luminosity part. Okay. Yeah, yeah. There's two aspects of the wait. There's two aspects of the definition of glory. There's the fame part and there's the luminosity light part. Like when you say glory, you just imagine a bright light, right? Go right. Ahead. <laughs> yeah. So uh, as Mr. Thomas uh, kind of kind of gave a brief description and as Riley was talking about, right, there's those um, when C.S. Lewis talks about glory, he said two things come to mind. Riley touched on the uh, humanly fame part of it. And C.S. Lewis does a good job connecting that um, fame as in knowing Christ, as in knowing God, having that personal relationship with him. Um, but C.S. Lewis also said he imagines when the word glory is mentioned, he imagines a sort of luminosity, a sense of divine light, um, golden splendor. Um, and he compares that. He does a great job connecting it to um, nature, right? We see we see nature, we see God's creation all around us, and it's beautiful. Um, we, we, we vacation to see beautiful sights, we go to 
great uh, views, you know, Hawaii, it's very beautiful, it's very green, or people, you know, climb Mount Everest for the view and other things. And we do that because we get a sense of um, enjoyment from viewing God's nature. It's something that's buried deep inside of us, something that can't be explained, yet we see it put on example every single day. We take pictures of pleasing sights to remember those things and so that we can go back and look at them. And so C.S. Lewis takes it one step further. He says, yes, humans do have this deep desire to view nature and to view its beauty and to take enjoyment in it, but that's not enough. Really deep down inside, humans long to be one with nature and he makes a great comparison that i think really makes sense and ingrains the idea in our minds is we've seen this in history right we've seen especially with greek mythology and other religions as well um we see humans constantly making gods out of the different elements whether it, you know it be the god of water the god of the sea or the god of the earth or the god of the skies as we see you know zeus poseidon and gaia and all the other goddesses right and it's evident that humans long for nature we long to be one with nature and so then he takes it a step further and he closes his point by saying in heaven we will be one with nature we will um be beings of luminosity we will give off great light almost as if we're angels because we will be heavenly beings and it's something beautiful to think about because i feel like we tend to we tend to not focus on that aspect um especially in today's world right but when C.S. Lewis puts it into perspective like this, and we think of the eternal glory and the eternal light that we will give off, and how beautiful heaven will be, and all the sights that we will see, and how that will protrude from inside of us, because we will become heavenly beings, one in Christ, it's really something beautiful to think about. And I think it's something that we all need to uh, remember, because right, we kind of put these earthly connections into heaven and imagine what heaven will be like, um, you know, imagining. You know, it'll be this great place of nature and it will be, but we also have to remember that we are going to become almost one with nature in a way, and it's going to bring us great enjoyment and that heavenly light, that luminosity is going to flow from us. So yeah, so that's kind of what I took away from it. I think C.S. Lewis does a great job painting that picture. And now I'm going to pass it off to Mr. Thomas for his closing thoughts and uh, one more piece of discussion. The basic idea, but I'm just gonna summarize what they said in the simplest terms. Here's Riley going, God will know you in heaven fully completely as you really should be as you really are and here's hector basically saying in heaven the beauty of god will be on you in you with you for you um and it will be connected throughout the entire creation and nature no interruption of sin or of death or destruction nothing like that so with that it now becomes our responsibility uh to i'll put it this way get people to step into that heavenly version of themselves, that glorious version of themselves, or we're going to push people towards a hellish version of themselves, a damned version of themselves, if I, if I dare say it. Mm -hmm. And he says it this way, and I'm going to read a little bit from the last paragraph, which to me is one of the more powerful things I've ever read, as I said before. Meanwhile, the cross comes before the crown, and tomorrow is Monday morning. So again, he's giving a sermon on a Sunday. And the basic idea is that none of this glory or none of this fame that we are as Christians are going to experience now. It's going to be completely distant from our thing. It's something we are looking forward to. It, today may feel like a complete suffering to you all. And yet, um, yet we need to think about that there's these overwhelming things. 
A cleft is open in the pitiless walls of the world, and we are invited to follow our great captain inside. That's Jesus, where he died on a cross, but then was raised in glory. That following him, of course, is the essential point. That being so, it may be asked what practical use there is of speculation which I have been indulging. I can think of at least one such use. It may be possible that each of us think too much of our own potential glory hereafter. It is hardly possible to think too often or too deeply about that of his neighbor. The load or the weight or the burden of the neighbor's glory should be laid daily on my back, a load so heavy that only humility can carry it, and it backs and the backs of the proud will be broken. It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses, to remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature, if you saw it now, would be strongly tempted to worship, or else a horror and a corruption such as now you'd meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. That right there, guys, is this sense that I have, and I have it, I'll just say it this way, towards my students. Right here, I am teacher to manual. I feel the sense of like what I am saying or what I'm doing, right, is to one degree or another, that's the next line, but pushing somebody towards heaven and them heavenly selves or hell and their hellish, hellish selves. And I have that in the balance. And it isn't even, I'll say as a Bible teacher, it isn't straightforward just because I'm preaching the Bible. It's necessarily going to be there. I can mess with someone in a way that might send them towards hell. And I can say something in a way that might send them towards heaven. And um, that, it's, it's a scary comment. Like, like if you have like, um, I, I think of all the verses, they're like, do not become teachers because uh, they'll have a greater judgment. Mm -hmm. Why? Mm -hmm. What I say as a teacher pushes people towards heaven or hell and whatnot. All day long, we are in some, oh, back to the, back to the passage. All day long, we are in some degree helping each other, well, each other to one or the other of these destinations. It is in light of these overwhelming possibilities. It is with awe and the circumspection proper to them that we conduct our dealings with one another in all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal. And their life is to ours, but the life of a gnat. But as immortals to whom we, with, we joke with, work with, marry, snub, exploit, immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. This does not mean that we are to perpetually be solemn. We must play. But our merriment must be of the kind, and it is, in fact, the merriest kind, which exists between people who have, from the outset, taken each other seriously. No flippancy, no superiority, no presumption. And our charity must be real and costly love with deep feelings of the sin, for the sins in spite of which we love the sinner. No mere tolerance or indulgence which parodies love as flippancy and parodies merriment. Next to the blessed sacrament ourself, itself, your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. If he, is, if he is your Christian neighbor, he is holy in almost the same way. For in him also Christ, the glorifier of the glory, glory himself, is truly hidden. I think this is where, um, like, I just sit there and go, okay, I, I teach secular courses like AP Econ, right? And there is something that we do in the class well. But there's also this idea of, like, I want people to know it and enjoy it and to be a part of it, to learn in it, partially because it's going to give them uh, a relationship and information that will push them towards heaven. It will push them away from sin. That will actually provide them, I don't know, a sense of play. Just think, um, the majority of our lives we spend working, right? Mm -hmm. You don't even get to do the, the fun things that you want to do because you have to do work all the time, right? And everyone's like, 
like broken into this. And yet our work is leading towards a far better vacation than mm-hmm. going to Vegas over spring break. Yeah. Um, sort of idea. And that weight just lays on it. And so um, I don't know, I, but if but it's immortals with whom we joke with, whom we with marry, snub and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting slenders. Um, I almost want to ask you guys, uh, like, because this is a question he goes, he goes there to play. Um, when you guys think about your plane, you're hanging out with people. Do you think it pushes anyone towards heaven or hell or doesn't at all? I would make an argument. I'm just going to say this from experience. I can make the argument that the board games, like when I started the board game club and all that sort of stuff, actually pushed people towards heaven. It gave that connection um, that was able to go with a few people, not everybody, but Aha U2, right? It made personal connections that have lasted for me beyond their life experience at Emmanuel that led towards heaven, right? Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. I'm hoping you've had similar experiences, maybe like, I don't know, football, yeah. know, Hector or whatever, maybe. But I'll actually ask you guys that one person. About the question? Yeah. I, I, I'll, I'll start with the question. Uh, I think. So most of the stuff that I do when I'm playing is either hanging out with friends or uh, like working out, going to the gym, or also hanging out with family. And I have seen times where you, you can feel this sense of pushing someone towards their more heavenly self. I think I, I've seen it before where I'll be fellowshipping with my friends during even even like lunch. And even though lunch is only like... 40 minutes and it seems insignificant it really does have a big impact on building up building up friendships building up connections because that's a time where it's just you can just connect with people right there's no class curriculum interrupting that flow it's just you being able to sit down talk about things laugh joke stuff like that and so i do think that there is a sense with my experiences at least of pushing people towards a more heavenly self and them ex- experiencing glory, I think, in a better sense. So, uh, yeah, you want to answer that? Yeah. So, yeah, so to kind of piggyback off what Riley said, um, this sense of playing, as Riley said, I think for most of us, when we think of that topic, uh, what comes to mind is, like Riley said, friends, or as Mr. Thomas kind of mentioned, is sports teams or extracurricular activities that we do. For me, I see these playful things as almost a first step. So, in these communities, uh, that we've built around ourselves, whether it be friends, a sports team, or a club that you're a part of, right? You're a part of a community. And in that community, you get closer and you form those bonds, performing those um, activities. And the second step is with those bonds formed, you then have a greater influence over the people around you, right? Because they see you as a friend, uh, they trust you. And when you have gained that trust, it is then when you can start having an influence on others, whether that be, you know, pushing them to heaven, as Mr. Thomas said, or pushing them to hell, which is a very scary thing. And I, I don't think that we often realize the amount of power that we have, especially with our friends inside our friend groups and even sports teams. If you're a captain or clubs, if you're the leader of a club or something, it's that sense of community that brings us closer together. And then from that, we can influence others and, you know, just be there for people or give a quick word or a quick prayer over them. And through that, they'll start to see how you lead by example and they'll they'll want to take what you've said to them because you are a friend and because what you say matters to them. That's at least how I see it. I've been a part of a football team and you know those guys are my brothers. We all have a bond that is almost unbreakable and 
lasting friendships have been made through that. And I know that because of that, those guys, I take what they say to heart. I value their opinions almost more so than, you know, someone random on the street, obviously, because I've been through a lot with those football guys. Same as classmates and friends. I value their opinions because I'm, I, I have that friendship with them. We have a community. And so I value what they say. And through that, you can either build up, as Mr. Thomas said, or you can break down. And it's a big responsibility and one that I think that we need to be more aware of. Yeah. I'll end with this. Lewis, um, in multiple of his uh, of his uh, locations, likes to have people encounter God, mm -hmm. right? Or encounter some sort of heavenly being that just, like, floors them. Uh, the most normal one is to think when, uh, you know, Lucy or one of the children, the Pimpency children, engage Aslan, and they see him, and he's powerful and beautiful and good, right? And, like, there's just this element of, like, how am I preparing people to engage the living God, right, is just kind of weighed on, weighs on me. And, you know, knowing that um, I do normal human things, like get distracted on my phone mm -hmm. or just get tired or whatever it may be. But it's to that end that we should push each other to, mm -hmm. once again, push each other into the presence of the God now, knowing that I'm preparing for that time that all things will be unveiled, that you'll really be able to see him, that you will physically be able to handle the the, the the glory and to be able to see them and all things I'll just say will be revealed and known as Christians I think we practice that we think about that we go wow I really am talking to God right now it really is glorious and it will be so much more glorious in the future thanks for listening <laughs>